Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. So we continue our Future Leaders Network series and today we have uh, Chris Tucci who is a Professor of um, Digital Strategy uh, and Innovation from uh, Imperial. So uh, Chris... Uh, welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be here. And of course, we have <laughs> our sort of uh, uh, permanent host, uh, Nathan Fur. Nathan, welcome. Great to be here. I'm really excited to to talk to Chris. It's gonna be great. <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be fun. Of course, for those of you who don't know, Nathan Nathan is a professor of strategy and innovation at uh, INSEAD, and congratulations, Nathan, on uh, finally getting that full professorship. Yeah, it's great to be over the bar for sure. And uh, it's all about big ideas from here. So it's it's exciting. It's a good part. Good good jumping off point for this conversation. Well, I, I only know you for big ideas anyway. So, uh, <laughs> That's so right. Even bigger ones even now. Bigger ones bigger. Now. <laughs> even bigger ones now. Well, you know, I know who to call if I'm having a bad day. I'm going to call Mo. So. <laughs> Excellent. So, uh, Chris, um, uh, maybe a little bit introduction to yourself. Sure. You know, what do you do, Imperial? Uh, and uh, you know, how do you spend your time? <laughs> how do I spend my? Okay, uh, well, thank you very much for the invitation. Um, so, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm professor of digital strategy and innovation at Imperial College Business School, and so you know, a big chunk of my job is doing you know research and teaching different different classes in. Uh, design thinking, digital strategy, digital transformation, digital technologies, uh, innovation challenge, like sort of deep tech commercialization, um, innovation management and entrepreneurship. So certain typical type things, doing research in, in those areas, related to those areas as well. Um, I also am the co-director of education for a new initiative at Imperial called IX or Imperial X. And um, IX is about a uh, new campus concept. So we, uh, Imperial College has acquired land in White City in London and not that far from South Kensington main campus. And we're, what we've done is we've created an inter-faculty or inter-school, some people say, like the different schools of Imperial College, so the Faculty of Medicine, the Faculty of Engineering, Faculty of Natural Sciences, and the Business School. And we're all in it together uh, to have people co-located to do research, uh, teaching, and other things, uh, and industry engagement in artificial intelligence, data, and digital topics. We're probably more working a little bit more on the AI side right now, uh, and so I'm, you know, I'm I'm helping uh, administer that program, that whole initiative. And my main thing, my main remit, is in the education area. So basically, the main thing that I've been doing that for that is a new MSc program, a new master's program called AI Applications and Innovation. And so there it's a one-year conversion degree. So that means that they, people can come from any background, but they should probably have some exposure to STEM type topics or at least computer programming, linear algebra, statistics, uh, uh, and so forth. Um, and then we basically give them uh, just some basic background information in, you know, Python programming in machine learning and in deep learning. And then we just give them a bunch of application areas, you know, internet of things, streaming finance data, uh, robotics, medical imaging, health data, and things like that. So they can take sort of um, electives in these different, uh, in these different topics. And then we also give them some business awareness 
So we will give them an entire, like a double module where they do a big project in called AI ventures and ethics. So they would have to create a business idea and a technical demo for an AI venture. And then we also give them an innovation management module. So it's kind of this halfway, it's a little bit between, um, it's a little bit between the, you know, typical, by the way, Imperial College has eight master's programs related to AI and machine learning. So, but you know, two of them are in business analytics. So it's more about dashboards and predictions and things like that. Mm. And six of them are very technical. <laughs> so, you know, they're very technical topics. So this is kind of somewhere in between those people who want to get, get sort of a, a good grounding and really a good understanding of the application areas and then probably take those into a business context and maybe possibly start company there. So that's a little bit of, you know, what I spend a lot of my time. I've also been a director of a center, an academic director of the Center for Digital Transformation. So they're doing applied research with companies to think about how they can, you know, make their digital transformation journey, help them with a digital strategy uh, and so forth. Mm. Certainly, uh, it's uh, a very deep and dear topic for EFG as well. Um, so, um, Chris, let's go to, I guess, the most important topic that everyone's asking about AI today. What the, is your the, top the question? Thing that they're, that they're asking me. Yeah. The thing they're asking, of course, most people are asking me, am I going to lose my job to a computer? <laughs> am I going to be out, automated out of a job in the near future? I think that's probably the main thing yeah. that people well, are thinking about. Right yeah, now. I guess specifically to me, uh, chief investment officers, you know, uh, going to be uh, some kind of automated AI portfolio manager. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. So, so, yeah. so what is your response to that? Um, I'm, I'm a little skeptical, to be honest, uh, about this happening in the very, very near future. And uh, I think that, you know, part of that is because of mostly not everything we do can be automated. You know, I think that's, uh, that's key. And even this latest study by McKinsey, you probably saw it recently saying that the, um, the time at which half of our typical tasks could be automated has been moved up by a decade. So that sounds like, wow, you know, <laughs> it's a, a decade earlier, but actually that time went from 2055 to 2045 or something like this. So we're still, you know, quite a ways off from the sort of, that's half <laughs> of our, uh, you know, of the average person's activities during the day. So there's so many things. I mean, yes, of course, certain things could be automated. Certain things that we do can be automated, but um, I'm a little bit more skeptical that we're all going to be, you know, sitting around having computers do everything for us <laughs> in the near future. So, so Chris, I get asked this question too. And yeah. I, I have a little framework that I use to think about it that, that I shared recently with a group of senior executives. I'd love to run it by you. Yeah, this sounds great. Because on the one, on the one hand, I think, you know, we all recognize that AI has this, you know, this character of what we might call a foundational technology, mm. you know, like the internet, like blockchain, you can build a lot of things on top of it. So that suggests it has this immense potential. And you see all these headlines that make people so anxious. Their jobs are going to disappear True. in a year because of all these amazing breakthroughs and all these things we can do. And, and what I try to help people think about is a way to ask, where should we pay attention? You know, I mean, it, let's not forget, it wasn't too long ago that 
Facebook changed its name to Meta and everybody was saying, oh my gosh, should I buy real estate in the metaverse? And, <laughs> and it wasn't too long ago that it was all NFTs and, and those certainly fell through right? Yeah. Uh, so far, not that they will forever. But, but the framework I use is I, 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 I use this little metaphor I call the Trojan horse. It's the Trojan horse of a technology. So again, the Trojan horse, you know, from from this, you know, you know ancient history uh, on the assault of the city of Troy, they couldn't break through the gates. And so they bring this wooden horse up as a gift and the citizens of Troy bring it in. And at night, the Greek soldiers hidden inside, get out and open the gate and let everybody in. So so I ask people to look for, well, for any given technology, look for the Trojan horse, which is what's the internal need? where this creates some value today, or the external market niche where it creates some value, where people actually will use it and pay for it, because that's where you're going to see this cycle of learning by doing, which is so powerful. So, so what I, when we think about the grand scope of AI and all it could do, and you know, generative AI as well, and different you know, machine learning applications, like where is this actually creating value today? And that's where you want to pay attention, get really curious. What do you think about yeah. that? I think that's it, really interesting. Love it. I love it. What's your... Um, <laughs> I, I, it, it's really interesting. I, I think it's it, it's true, too. Uh, for, you know, quick reaction. I think that the generative AI is actually going to do a lot in the metaverse, you know, and, and I think that's going to be something. <laughs> it, it probably, you know, to get to your point, starting with video game, you know, quick video game generation where there's a lot of value to be had. Um, but... You know, if you ask me about generative AI in general, what 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 seems to be, you know, interesting is that it's it's useful for the brainstorming type. It's it's not. We know it's not useful for for fact checking. You know, for for gener writing a report or summarizing some historical event. Um, but you know, in terms of coming up with a few new ideas for people, or to come up with some better marketing copy, or for coming up with you know, these are the kinds of things. Or video game coding. I actually did a really interesting uh, experiment a couple weeks ago. Uh, I had a had a PhD student give us a little demo on using Chat GPT to write code for like a tragedy of the commons type problem, like overfishing a lake. Okay, it's like an agent-based simulation model now. For me, probably something like that would take me a couple months to do, you know, to, to do it correctly. Uh, but we were able to do it in one hour, you know. Uh, it's a well-known problem. So, of course, you can articulate the problem more easily. But still, you know, you, you could imagine this could probably take less than a week if, you, if it was a completely unknown, different problem. So, you know, to, and, and to debug it in real time. It didn't work perfectly. And then we say, oh, sorry, this didn't work. And it's the, you know, the system says, oh, yeah, you forgot to load this library here. You know? <laughs> so uh, you can see that you know, I, I feel like some of these things where, we're, where it's not reliant on historical, you know, on, on, on being right about anything. So brainstorming, you know, um, coming up with some suggestions for a plot for a book or a movie or something like this, a video game production clearly uh, those are the, tro I would say those are the more like the Trojan horses, uh, metaverse, you know, just genera generating content for metaverse, I think, you know, those are the kinds of things that could be quite interesting that are value add right now that people probably be willing to pay for right now, or if people are paying for right now, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting, Chris, uh, that you mentioned that, that like it's about generating, but not about factual content. And if we think about, so I had some colleagues uh, in the strategy discipline who 
did a little experiment and they took one of the really challenging case studies that we teach in business school. Uh, it's an old uh, case study called, you know, crown cork and seal. And, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that one. <laughs> you, you know that one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well what's, what's great about it is it replicates this very common human situation. And essentially in the case, as you know, uh, this company does really well and they attribute it to great leadership when in reality, there's this structural feature about how they source and that gives them this competitive advantage, but they don't understand that and see that. And what's interesting is when you feed the whole case and the case questions to, you know, generative AI, it gets it wrong. It gets it completely wrong. It says, oh, it's leadership. And that's what matters when really. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I want to bring that back to this general thesis of, you know, what are these tools really helping us do uh, right. and not do? Right. And, and seeing them, I think, is a compliment to exactly. what we as humans are really good at, which is sometimes really piercing through, you know, kind of subtleties, seeing the human aspect of something. So I, yeah. I, I really like how you brought that up about what it's good at and maybe what it's not so good at. Yeah. And it's gener when you say generative, also, you know, the generative part here, it could be applied to different things. You know, I mean, it could be applied to something that where you need a lot of fact checking and there that kind of generative AI is is not so it's not so useful right now. You know, and maybe at some point it's going to be better. Uh, but, you know, right now it's more like the generative AI that helps you with your brainstorming, you know, or that helps you with a rough draft or, you know, things that where you don't really care. By the way, I had I actually did it. Um, it's really interesting and you should try it sometime. Have it summarize one of your papers. And um, I had to summarize one of my papers. But I, with, I didn't upload the paper. Okay, I just said, you know, tell me about crowdsourcing as a distant search. And it actually had a pretty good summary of that paper. But it also threw in examples which are consistent with what we wrote in that paper, but that we never talked about in that paper. You know, so it, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's fun. To, I mean, actually, that's one of the reasons that it's taken off so well. It's fun to play with. You know, so from that point of view, it's, it, it's interesting. So Chris, moving maybe a little bit in terms of some of the concepts um, that you, you've just brought up here, and I'm just sort of relaying it to some of the, um, you know, writer strikes, for example, we have in, in, in the media industry in the US at the moment. Mm. And then we're also seeing sort of different strikes maybe in the auto industry and others. Um, from a kind of historical perspective, the skepticism that's appearing, um, particularly in media, which is probably the the key one that that is already feeling like it's going to be disrupted. Um, you know, are they right to be striking right now? Is it just too late? You know, are, are they arguing about the wrong problem? Do you see what I mean? So, um, yeah. Um, you know, any thoughts around that? Yeah, I mean. I'm you know, I think it's quite an interesting issue. Now, I think for these writers' strikes, I think they're not wrong to strike um, and because I think that there's different there's different things going on. And I'm not so sure that the AI, you know, replacement effect is the main thing. I think that they're mainly concerned about, you know, getting royalties on things that they've already written that are streaming. I mean, it's a definitely a digital technology issue mm, mm. because now, you know, they're not sent, you know, playing it on television anymore because it's not worth it anymore <laughs> in many cases, you know, and instead they just upload to a platform. And by the way, when they do that, those guys don't get paid anything yeah, or they get paid yeah. very, very little. Yeah. So I think that they, they are, you know, correct to strike. I don't think that they're necessarily, I mean, they, they probably should be a little bit worried about 
automation in this space. Although again, it's a, I feel like it's right now, it's more like a rough draft type thing, you know? So if you want to plot for a film or for a television show, you know, you can use these things and you can get some really pretty good ideas, but you know, in the end, the person's going to probably, you know, produce the, you know, do the, make the human thing and, and, and make and write these shows. So, um, you know, I, yeah, I guess the royalty issue is, is one of them. Obviously we had, um, um, you know, so various artists be mimicked. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, and, uh, it's true. And and uh, I guess it's interesting to see where the sort of intellectual property, particularly around creativity, you know, yeah. goes. You say make me a make me a you know a, a song, write a song that's in the style of so and so. Correct. Now yeah. you're absorbing all their stuff that they have posted publicly, and then you're you're coming up with something that's highly similar. And so you know, does that entitle you as the you know the artist? To any kind of compensation right now, I, I think someone someone made some noise recently that said that they were one company was going to pay them or something like this. I don't really know exactly mm. how, mm. how that works. I, that would be definitely something worth striking over. Yeah. Um, you know, it's harder I think if you're a television writer or something like this because you're kind of like an unknown quantity. You know, these big name artists, of course, they can be copied easily because there's a lot of stuff out in the public domain. You know, uh, writer. <laughs> Uh, for a television show, usually there's a team of them, you know, mm. and then, <laughs> yeah, it's tricky. Because I think this is the part that's actually just fascinated me a little bit around the he the whole sort of AI sort of story and creativity around AI. Um, obviously, media to me is the first one. You talk about gaming and some of these other things, yeah. uh, gaming in the metaverse, you can see already where this is kind of heading towards yeah. and the creativity is just going to be a a different level yes. than the level that we've been sort of uh, used to. Um, I don't know, Nathan, what's your, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm really glad uh, you, you brought this up because I was thinking about media, right. And I was thinking about how, you know, I've, I've worked with some large media organizations and, and one of the things I really stressed about is will generative AI essentially replace the role of the journalist and of the news writer and these kind of things. But I always go back to my fundamentals, right? And, and I, you know, Chris knows this. What is strategy? Strategy is the question of why does one firm perform better than another? And at the root of the answer to that question is about being different. Uh, what, what, what do we do differently? And so I ask, well, what is going to happen in the future of generative AI and media and how can we be different from that? And one prediction I would make, I'd be curious about your reaction, is that actually we'll see this massive proliferation of content. And that content may or may not be accurate, and it likely won't be very balanced. I mean, we already right. can see how, you know, the algorithms by which, say, Facebook serves you up news already kind of bias towards serving you up news and media that matches your political orientation or, or gets you really gets inflamed you outraged, against yeah. <laughs> a different political orientation. So, and those algorithms are, you know, are AI, you know, they are uh, early, you know, uh, versions of that. And so, so we already see that happening. So I ask, gosh, in a world with lots of stuff out there mm. that can be created by generative AI and of which the accuracy may be questionable because what generative AI is taking stuff that's out there mm. and and making something new. And if it's a lot of inaccurate stuff out there, then you get a lot of inaccurate new stuff. Then to me, I wonder about, well, what will be the value of trust 
yeah. of expertise, of independence. I think the value of those things actually could go up a lot. And we could see a, re, a, a resurgence of our valuation of journalists who are independent, for example, or media that is verified. Because the more stuff that gets out, the more narrow you have to be like, well, I know Chris Tucci and I can trust him, so I'm going to listen to him. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know about I don't know if I agree with that last bit, but but before that, I'm, I'm <laughs> completely um, I completely agree, and actually worked a little bit on an editorial uh, kind of an op-ed piece uh, a few months ago, a couple months ago, on this topic with Ted Chang and Esteban Almiral, and basically what we were arguing is you know this generative AI it might seed uh, other generative AI, and so that's that's where it gets into a little bit of a dicey situation. And we, we we called it the gray goo, because basically, you know, it can you could imagine that generated content would greatly exceed the actual content that people wrote, and that if there's some misinformation or disinformation in there, it could get amplified a lot, and that could be quite a big uh, that could turn into quite a big problem. You know, because then you're just reinforcing everything that was been saved because the amount of stuff that's available in the public domain would go would go up. You know, so I think that that's a so then the value of trust uh, and and an individual journalist, you know, who, who's actually on the ground seeing things. I hope, <laughs> you know, would be would be more valuable in, in a situation like that. Or of an expert, or of, of right. something else. And oh, what would you say, Chris? In your mind, are the other things that you know? by which we as human beings living and breathing will differentiate ourselves. I always say, you know, embrace technology, but also differentiate from it. And, and so what are the other ways that you imagine, you know, living human beings and, and organizations can differentiate themselves from what, what this next generation of tools yeah. can do? Well, someone said artisans, first of all, you know, like, like artisans have taken a hit, I guess, or in some sense, you know, over last 20, 50 years. Uh, but maybe that's like going to have a resurgence, you know, when <laughs> people working with their hands and actually making things, you know, unique things. I think that's also, that's quite, you know, uh, an interesting, uh, an interesting possibility. Um, so I I imperfection becomes authenticity. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but most you're onto yeah. something. Authenticity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're really, you know, Here's another funny thing about technology. So I, I've done a little bit of work uh, about this idea of what we would call technology reemergence. So I, I kind of stumbled across this. I was in uh, at a conference in Seattle and I went on a tour of this chocolate factory and I go into this chocolate factory and they're using these machines from a hundred years ago. And I'm like, why are you using these old hundred year old <laughs> machines? And, and, and then I start seeing it everywhere. You, you vinyl records are everywhere right. now and yeah, yeah, film-based photography and, and, and what I've started to see, and, and those are obviously kind of consumer applications, but you know, uh, if you look in the technology space, we still use magnetic storage. We still use, you know, uh, you know, big hard disk drives and, and what I started to ask myself is, why is this happening? And I, and I do think that when you have this kind of wave of change and disruption in the early days, it's easy for people to kind of discard the old thing. So we all get rid of our film-based photography and say, I'm done with that. I want a digital camera. And then at some point, people realize, gosh, but that thing, that old tech did something. It served some need, did some job to be done that's missing. Right. And so people kind of come back to that. So when you say a resurgence of artisans, I say a resurgence of of trust or expertise or media, I'm I'm saying, well, kind of what can we predict in the future 
will resurge because that's something that we value that this technology cannot do. Right. Actually, one of my um, colleagues, uh, Turaj Ibrahimi, he's a professor of multimedia at EPFL in Switzerland. And he, you know, took some videos of piano players playing uh, two pianos at the same time and they were coordinating with each other and like and looking at each other and, and for the next cue and, you know, and, and executing really, really well. And uh, he was saying, like, I don't see computers doing this, you know, in the near future. It's, it's quite interesting. <laughs> There's a human connection there uh, between the piano players. There's a coordination. And it was not something that was just purely, you know, it was, it was a physical connection, let's just say. You know, it was quite interesting. <laughs> so if authenticity is a thing, which I, th I think we all kind of... Uh, agree with uh, that this is a direction that this will take given all the noise and the, and the, uh, that uh, we will already receiving and we will be receiving exponentially. How do we then um, um, authenticate? Obviously, <laughs> we're maybe going a bit of a round robin back to, to tokenization but, and, and origination uh, around that. Yeah. Um, do you think that that's where this eventually, if authenticity and and origination or that that original thing um, is important, then authenticating that and making that trust is tokenization as one solution, right? And certainly in the metaverse, it's a pretty damn good solution. Right. Um, any thoughts around that? <laughs> uh, it's you know it's it, I think it's actually a very important issue. If you think about deep fakes, there's yeah, an yeah. example of, yeah. you know, like a real, like, <laughs> how can we get control of this? I mean, some of it is, you know, misinformation that's on social media. And some of it is like real, quite authentic looking deep fake, yep. you know? Yep. So I think that it's a... It's uh, a I was thinking Harrison Ford in the latest uh, yeah. movie, yeah. Um, uh, Raiders, the, or, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark version. I can't remember the name of the movie now. Or something, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's something where the, he probably wanted it, you know. Yeah, but yeah. in many cases, it's like you know, someone showing that you were you know, a, a fake video that yeah. you were drunk yeah. or you know whatever a politician was drunk or you yeah. know whatever. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's really tricky problem that I, I've I've seen uh, Marshall Van Alstyne. He made a very interesting presentation of a couple of weeks ago. Uh, about, you know, it's kind of like trying to brainstorm a little bit about systems that could be put into place to, to enable some kind of authentication where you have to pay, you know, you have to pay if someone, someone else challenges, trying to make an, the problem with it is it's like a, always relying on a centralized authority to mm -hmm. determine who's the, who's authentic. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you have a centralized authority, then that person could abuse their authority. So he's been trying to brainstorm of different ways that you could actually have a decentralized, you know, non, you know, authority where people could maybe pay into a like a escrow or something uh you know if you and if you're for re, if you really think it's real then you're willing to pay that money and then you can pay to get into other people's feeds or whatever and then if it turns out to be false you lose your money in your escrow you know and so it would become costly to make deep fakes and things like this but i mean i think it's a it, it, and that's obviously a very tricky you know thing to, to execute um but i think it's worth considering right now indeed uh, you know, how we could get a, a kind of a decentralized system that would also be useful for, for authentication. I, I like that a lot. And I would be curious to 
you know, kind of as you, from where you sit at Imperial X, what do you see as like some of the biggest opportunities around AI and some of those biggest threats? And you, you talked about authentication as a threat. So what are the big opportunities and threats from where you sit at this kind of intersection of the university? Right now, the the biggest opportunities, I would say, are the uh, natural sciences. So AI for science. And actually, there was a quite big uh, international competition from the Schmidt Futures Foundation, the Eric and Wendy Schmidt Foundation, uh, to to work on not AI algorithms, but actually AI applied to scientific disciplines, mostly natural sciences. And um, we happen to have won one of those. Um, there were eight or nine universities picked worldwide, and it pays for let's just say 130 postdoc years. So it's quite you know quite a commitment. And I actually went to one of the, I went to their, their first convening in Toronto last couple of weeks ago, and uh, it was a crash course in natural science, I'm telling you. And it was really interesting what was going on there. Ecology, uh, medicine, biology, physics, you know, even measuring, trying to measure dark matter in the universe using AI, you know, I mean, it's really interesting. Math. Uh, so I, I thought it was, um, you know, so for me, I feel like this is a really interesting uh, thing that people hadn't really thought about very much, you know, in the past, they were really thinking about how can we make the AI better and better and better. And now we're thinking more like, how can we apply this AI to different things? And that a lot of people haven't really considered in the past, you know, and so we have all these postdocs all over the world now working on these problems simultaneously. And I think that's, that's quite in the application areas that I saw was it were truly, you know, stimulating and, and interesting. Very cool. That's interesting. Yeah. I want you to see, like, it's, you know, what are the other threats you worry about other than just kind of the authentication, authentication or the, you know, what do you call it, the gray gooey mask? Yeah, the gray goo. Yeah. Amplification. <laughs> That's a new word, right? The gray gooey. Someone, someone coined it for something else, like when some, when some material starts taking over, like some kind of artificially generated material starts expanding into a space or something like this. So we expropriated that for the AI. Uh, you know, and so there's that. There's the fact-checking issue, which I think is quite, you know, important. There's the, you know, the algorithmic bias and the lack of generalizability, uh, which I think is also quite, quite difficult. And then the latest thing I've been thinking about a lot, and I'll probably mention it a bit tonight later on, is the uh, this idea of, you know, AI used in a way that's where you need to interact a lot with people. So, you know, standalone systems work very, very well, but putting too much faith in a system where you need to interact a lot with people, you know, ca can cause, um, can cause problems. So an example is like these, these cases where they were you know, using AI for cancer diagnosis and treatment and, you know, worked really well in one hospital and then moved to another hospital, it didn't work. You know, it's hospital spending tens of millions, dozens of millions of dollars, you know, on this uh, implementation. And so you can think about it as sort of, um, you know, wh what is it? Is it a bias? You know, is it is it that the people presenting in the first hospital were different people than the ones in the second hospital? You know, was it uh, IT implementation, you know? Uh, that's a, that's another theory. Uh, the third theory, the one I was like, the one I like, and I, I think it's a combination of all these things. But the ones that people haven't talked about very much is, here's a system where the doctors didn't 
know why the system was proposing this kind of cancer or this particular f treatment and they want to query it and then they you know so they had to it wasn't like a standalone thing where you just like get gave it the answer and then you just executed you know it, it was a, something where they wanted to have more interactivity to try and figure out what was going on and that caused them to have a lack of trust in the system and then you know then that starts kind of some kind of spiral so i i i like to think about it in this way of this sort of a modular system versus a you know complex system and a complex system where the ai is involved uh is is something that's we haven't really considered very i feel like we haven't considered it very much uh, as, as a potential problem for for ai in general I like that. And, you know, I'll just riff on that a little bit, Chris, and say one of the things I think we need to think about is the interaction of people and tools. Uh, so I've written a little bit about this and, and it's not something we should just take for granted. So one of my uh, colleagues who graduated from Harvard, uh, Yunjin Kim, did this research where they essentially looked at, they used a, you know, an AI a system to predict which restaurants in Boston should be inspected for like food safety. <laughs> uh, and, and what they found is that even though the AI system did a much better job of predicting which restaurant should actually be inspected and you know, had a violation, the people, the experts who had this, you know, been doing this for years, just said, I, I don't, I don't trust it. It doesn't match my simple rule. And I don't understand how this system made this judgment. And so mm -hmm. I hear echoes of that, it, yeah. that it's not just about developing systems that do marvelous things. It's also asking thoughtful questions about how does this integrate with the way people work, with the way we trust. So a lot of times we want to know, well, how did it arrive at this? Which is a hard thing often with, you know, right. black box of algorithms. And, and then how does this impact me? Is this going to help me or is this going to hurt me? And I think that human tool interface is, is one of the big questions we need to we need, to, we need to wrestle with this, which is why everybody's asking you, will I lose my job? Because we're not, <laughs> we're not there yeah, yet. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I yeah. think that's really... <laughs> well, well, certainly does create that, again, it goes back to, you know, that sort of trust. How do you, how do you generate, how do you create that trust between the machine and the, and the individual? Yeah. Um, I guess it's been quite a lot written about it uh, in terms of how to overcome it. Uh, any sort of tricks of the trade? That is obvious. I don't know. I, well, I think it's probably all pretty obvious, but I, I've been thinking about this a lot and working on some projects in this area. So we're trying to like think of sort of analyzing the rules. If it's a, if it's a pure rule based system, then you know you can actually look at the rules, and so that's that's okay. The problem is comes when you get to these complex systems, like a black box system. Then you know you have to think about the decisions, and this is where I was talking about before about automating the decisions. So imagine instead that they just went ahead and, and created the restaurant's inspection scheme and then they sent out the inspectors, you know, without any, you know, without um, uh, any checks, mm. you know. And so that, that's the question. And so there, that can be applied to lots of different things, finance, financial services, <laughs> you know, recidiv criminal recidivism. You can imagine all the different ways this could be used and or abused. And so there I think it's more of a question of, trying to understand so having somebody then turn around and keep, and keep checking these decisions and and, and and see how how good they are and how accurate they are and then to add another dimension to this whole thing is the complexity element so when you you know turn down somebody for a loan and that causes them to lose their bank account or something like this you know and it's an automated system you know then you have a you you have to do more than just analyze the decision of that of the loan you have to think about 
the decision of the whole chain of events that are connected mm -hmm. with this, which could be quite, you know, quite complex. So I think there's a there's some scope here for you know when do you want to have bring in the people to to think about this and what kind of people do you need to 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 bring I guess, on board? Yeah, yeah, I guess the natural thing I always think of is stop goes or traffic lights, right? So you you you're green up until the point when oh I'm, a decision needs to be made. You then hit the amber or the red or hit the green button to go to the next step. Yeah. And I guess then that then creates the trust in the system that, oh, actually, and then eventually just get automated. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Well, there's an emotional component of it too for yeah, the yeah. people. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So I think that's also quite an interesting you know, area. And, you know, we have biases as human beings, and, yeah. and I don't remember the, the research that showed this, but the simple rule I heard is that, for humans, if we need, you know, a machine or a prediction to be about 10 times more accurate than a human being to trust it. In other words, <laughs> even if the AI system or let's say a self-driving car, you know, has accidents five times fewer than a human being, we'll still say like, oh, that's, that's not, yeah, that's not as good as a human being. It really has to be literally an order of magnitude better in terms of its, its safety, its achievement for us to really be like, okay, I trust that, which is just like a bias in, in, right. in how we're built, but we, we need to be aware of that. Yeah. But, you know, if you, you can't just reveal something, say like, it's as good as a human or it's twice it's as twice good as a human. Good. And <laughs> people are like, no, it's not. <laughs> even actually for the self-driving car, I think it's going to be even better than, you know, like 10 times better. And even then people still won't do it. I'm actually nervous about it myself, but it's only because I'm afraid that if I got a self-driving car, it's all the other people who don't take the self-driving car <laughs> <laughs> crash into me, you know. <laughs> Probably if we could impose it on everybody all at once, it would actually be beautiful, you know. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Traffic lights. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> you, you know, I was thinking about, we were chatting a little bit about the hardware that supports all these things, you know, the, yeah. and uh, it was interesting back, you may remember there's a period when the big tech firms were doing a lot of layoffs. And one of the things I heard just through the grapevine was that part of the reason they were doing that was to allocate more capital to literally buying the hardware. <laughs> and so one of the things that, you know, Mose and I were kind of wrestling with is, will, do we think this demand for the hardware will continue or will there be kind of like a, a crash and shadow? I mean, we've already had yeah. two AI winters, right. you know, so what, what's, you know, what, do you have any, what's your view <laughs> on that? <laughs> it, it's, it's a really interesting question. Uh, I, I heard recently that there's, you know, eventually there's just going to be like these big tech companies that are renting, you know, AI cycles. And, you know, the question is, do you really want to have that situation where we only have three companies to go to and they, you know, so, so you know, they could, they could, that could lead to a crash in the hardware, right? Because you'd only have a few, a few big players and they could do it and they could do everything. The question is, do you, is that something that, is that a desirable situation? I think it would probably be cheaper if that's the case, you know, like a cloud server type thing, but, but for AI, um, that, that's, you know, quite, that could be quite good. But on the other hand, do you really want to upload your private confidential corporate documents, you know, onto a, onto a chat GPT, <laughs> you know, and then have that be part of the background information that's used to make other things, you know, so it, it may not be, it may not be a great situation to have three tech companies or five or whatever controlling all the cycles 
So maybe there's a still maybe there's still a lot of room to grow here. I, I originally worked in I was actually working in AI research myself. Believe it or not, in the ninth early I hate to say it in the early 1980s. <laughs> so I've seen the the troughs. I've seen the you know the the, <laughs> the peaks and the troughs. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, and it's always dangerous to say you know well, this this time it's going to be different. It's going to keep growing forever. I, mean, I probably at some point it's definitely you know they'll definitely come up with some other hardware, especially in the hardware space, you know, it's hard to know. Uh, right now, I think we're still in this endless appetite to try and create these things. And maybe a lot of companies will create their own private large language models and things, sort of things like that. And maybe that'll continue for this cycle for a little bit longer than maybe than originally predicted. And I, I don't know. So uh, maybe a question for both of you, uh, maybe last question actually, uh, it's amazingly quick uh t time that we've uh, or how quickly time has gone in this conversation <laughs> um um and it's a question for for both of you obviously um l you know uh, sort of large language models are basically all the rage and everything is is around that and all the computing power that's the needed to to power that certainly there's been, feels like an arms race at the moment mm. um you know where do you think this is kind of going and you kind of alluded to that. are we going to have huge amount of excess in large language you know large language models uh, over the next sort of two or three years and then basically it just dies because everything that we'd ever needed is is already been built for <laughs> yeah um it's it's hard to know i i think that right now it's the the you know the chat GPT, the chat part, yeah. you know, is new. Yeah. The GPT part's already been around for a while. <laughs> uh, so it gave people the sense of being able to play with it, you know, and being able to play with it and share it on social media and things like that, which, which stimulated a lot of the, a lot of the interest in it. Um, so in terms of a diversion, you know, I see it's, it's something that's, that's quite valuable, you know, and, and probably could keep going for, for a bit longer, you know, for a bit longer. So I, it's hard for me to, yeah, it's hard to, hard to know where this is all, where, where it's going to end up. But I feel like it's, it's really this user interface part that's taken off. And the underlying technology, of course, has been making great progress. And there's probably, there's still quite a long ways to go. It reminds me of the so-called human brain project, where the idea was, and it was a flagship project for the European Commission. And the idea was to simulate the human brain and after and I put one billion into it and, and by the way I, I'm not I don't I'm for that that's great that was a great scientific achievement but at the end of the 10 years uh you know I happened to visit the site and people some people were asking so so are you simulating the human brain well not exactly we're not simulating the human brain but we're simulating a mouse brain wow you really simulate a mouse brain. well we're not exactly simulating a mouse brain we're simulating this little tiny you know, tiny tiny region of a mouse brain <laughs> And that was after 10 years mm. and 1 billion, you know? Mm. So I feel like there's still so much, you know, capacity between what we have now and a human brain <laughs> that it's probably, you know, not going to be tomorrow that we just tire of this whole thing. I don't know. That's just, what do you think, Nathan? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think back to the dot-com era. And, and what I remember about the rise of the dot-com era was this uh, incredible amount of media 
And this dialogue that was saying, everything's changed. All the rules of the game are changed. Everything's different. And then you have this dot-com bust and this incredible hangover of people (laughs) saying, oh, that none of that was real. None of the gig economy, we didn't call it that then, but that's not going to happen. And, and, you know, platforms don't really, they're not that big a deal. And then, of course, we see over the longer arc of time that actually – internet is pretty foundational and a lot of things did change just not as fast as we thought and and so what i yeah. think what's a little bit dangerous about chat gpt is precisely because people can play with it and precisely because it can do things they can do like write an essay for school or something it's caught the public imagination in a way that i would say it's probably a bit inflamed right. what uh, people weren't well-informed think it can do. Uh, there will be likely a contraction in terms of people saying, well, it's not really that good for that much, but but it like the internet, yes. it's going to keep steaming. And so how do you know where to pay attention to? And, and I would just go back to the, you know, we talked about, you know, a couple critical things. We talked about one, look for the Trojan horse. Look where this is creating value today, the cycle of learning by doing, where it's paying for itself, that will have the robustness to endure through any sort of you know disappointments that could happen. From a firm perspective, I would say, you know, look at how these tools complement what you do, but also ask, how do you differentiate? What do you do differently? What, you know, don't, you know, my advice to the big media organization would be, you know, don't fire everybody because, <laughs> yeah, right. and to replace it with ChatGPT. <laughs> ask, what do we do? We can offer expertise. We can offer independence. And then I, I say the same thing at a personal level where you say, am I going to lose my job? Well, embrace it as a compliment that help where it helps you do something better if it helps you do something better and and differentiate again what do i as an individual uh do better and 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 for investors you know since a a lot of folks who listen are investors i would say look at those underlying needs again this is back to the trojan horse but we talked a lot about security and reliability and authenticity and productivity and 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 i think those are good guides uh in whatever we may face yeah well, uh, absolutely. Thank you very much. And very nice summary, Nathan. Thank yeah, you. That was great. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> We're going to scribble that down a bit later on as well. But, uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for uh, a fascinating time. I have to say, I learned quite a lot. Um, certainly has crystallized some thoughts and some activity or research activity. Certainly, uh, myself and the rest of the investment team here at EFG will will probably do it a bit a bit of a deeper dive on. Uh, and um, and uh, you know, thank you very thank you again very much for uh, taking the time, both uh, Nathan and Chris. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was great. That was great. Very stimulating. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, that wraps us up for today on Beyond the Benchmark. Of course, if you have any questions. For, uh, for myself or even Chris and Nathan, please send them in and we'll certainly pass them on and hopefully we can find the holy grail of AI eventually. <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your day.